Part 1, the division of a course upon the art of oratory, has always been, as it ever must be, invention, disposition, elocution, invention, strictly speaking, expands itself over the whole field of rhetoric, we invent our plan, we invent our language, the same faculty is applied to everything, it is the whole talent, it is the whole art, but if we consider here, not the faculty, the exercise of which is unlimited, but the object, which is special, we shall find a real difference and distinction between these three things, the matter or ground, which is to be invented, the order, which is to be invented, and the style, which is to be invented, a division which corresponds to the ancient one, and which, perhaps, we may use to advantage, while, however, we retain the terms, we premise that by the word invention, we understand only the invention of the ideas, or the matter, of which the disposition and expression are afterwards to be invented, invention here, then, is taken in the narrower sense, the invention of the matter of the discourse, for, in the absolute sense, it presents itself at every point in the art, it is true, nevertheless, that the invention of the principal ideas of the discourse is invention in the highest sense of the term Pascal, Pensy, edition for dear, Tomai, page 254, 24, it is difficult to explain invention, taken as an active spring, as an energy of the mind, at whatever point we place it in the art, invention, in its principle, is a mystery, talent may explain its methods, not itself, the development of the germ is human, the germ is divine, to say that invention is not something sui generis, were to say that imagination is not a distinct faculty, a primitive force, and if nothing but mere method were here to be recognized, yet must it be admitted that this method is, in certain minds, innate, that it is a talent, this instinctive, enchantress-like method is, perhaps, talent itself, invention is a kind of divining rod, it is impossible to give it to ourselves, absolutely, it is even impossible when one has one kind of invention to give himself another kind. We may be inventive in philosophy without having the least measure of historical invention. Invention, however, is an element in every mind, but minds in this respect are very unequal and very different. Where there is no invention, art loses its prerogatives, but it never loses them, for there is always some measure of it. No one can do everything, but no one does all he can do. To know our wealth we must make it available. An inventive mind may become more so by the use of certain means which are not talent, and a mind in which invention is feeble, but not entirely wanting, may, by the use of the same means, develop this power in itself. The means of turning to account in developing what we have of invention, are the following. 1. Knowledge. The more we know the greater is our advantage for inventing. An original mind does not lose, it gains in originality by knowledge. The mutual intercourse of mind with mind, of thought with thought, is not unfriendly to individuality, in this sphere, also, it is not good for man to be alone, every kind of knowledge does not promote originality, but an original mind has an original erudition, knowledge, an element as it seems wholly objective, becomes in it a subjective element. However this may be, it is given to no man to draw something from nothing, the most exalted imagination must have a point of departure or a point of rest, talent is a lever, but a lever only, the human mind can create nothing, it can produce only after it has been made fertile by experience, its own or another's, or by meditation, its knowledge is the germ of its productions, the generality of writers pass and repass over mines of gold, a thousand times, without suspecting their existence. Genius alone has the instinct which gives notice of the riches of the mine, as it alone has the power of penetrating into its bowels and drawing thence its treasures. 
2. The second means is meditation, a species of incubation which warms and fructifies the germ. It is the concentration of the thought, nay even of the life, upon a point with which we seek to identify ourselves. Meditation is aided by analysis, but meditation is not analysis. If we are not mistaken as to the etymology of the word, meditation introduces us into the midst of the object. We seek to obtain by means of it, not a simple idea or a formula, but a direct perception. There is analysis, logic in it also, but it is rather that of the object than of the subject, rather that of sentiment than of thought. It is a continued and deep impression of the thing, a sort of consubstantiation. It implies a force, a peculiar aptitude, but as well has much to do here. We put meditation among the means of invention, we do not make it the principle of invention. Meditation is to talent what conscience is to the moral sense. 3. Analysis, a different thing from meditation, strives to ascend to the remote idea of the object, as to a summit where we may command all the declivities, and where we may see, in proportion to our elevation, a more extended horizon. It incessantly climbs toward the most simple and lofty principle, always meeting as it mounts, elements less contingent, less accidental. When guided by sound logic and profound metaphysics, it arrives at surprising results. Surprising, I mean, to itself, it makes new and striking discoveries. We must not confound with this process, the methods of a trivial logic which is always sure to produce something, always sure to fill a certain space, but which never moves anything beyond the uppermost layer of the soil. 4. Exercise. The more we exact of the soil, the more it produces. It does not exhaust itself. We shall get the more from it the more it has given us. We may not here apply the passage. Your strength is to sit still, Isaiah, xxx7. For sitting still will enfeeble and kill us. It is rust and not use that tarnishes the luster of steel. Under the head of invention, the rhetoricians, we may observe, neither treat of the talent of invention nor of the means of developing it. They would rather prescribe certain laws to it, they attempt to regulate it. In the ancient systems of rhetoric, invention is less the faculty of finding, than the art of choosing among things found. The orator must use discernment, he must not only find ideas to express, he must examine them. Nothing is more prolific than the mind, especially when it has been cultivated by study, but as a rich, productive soil, not only produces wheat, but all kinds of weeds that injure the good seed, the mind, in like manner, sometimes produces frivolous thoughts, or thoughts foreign to the object it has in view, and of no utility, and the orator must carefully select the ideas which are to have a place in his work, Cicero, orator, it should be observed that the ancient orators, having in view only judicial and deliberative eloquence, have nothing to say on invention of the subject, which was always prescribed to the orator, it is otherwise with the eloquence of the pulpit, the preacher, it is true, might be compelled to choose a text, but he cannot be forbidden to choose his subject first, and his text for his subject, and then, as to the text itself, after it has been chosen, he has often to find or create a subject for it, besides, we do not admit that the use of a text is essential to pulpit eloquence, we may then say, that the preacher is often required to choose his subject, and when we say choose, we do not mean take it ready prepared from the midst of a table of contents, all arranged in order, of a list of heads with their subdivisions, the number of subjects is incalculable, each following the relation, the combination which has been preconceived, multiplies itself, it is as the five loaves and two fishes of the gospel, no one in this matter is obliged to walk in the steps of his predecessors, without seeking novelty, 
we may be new, a simple impression received from our text, or a view furnished by life, may contribute to novelty, but the most reliable means of invention, as to the subject of discourse, is a truly philosophical culture, under this conviction, we cannot too earnestly recommend to candidates for the pulpit, the study of philosophy, which will be constantly giving them new aspects of the same truth, but this, strictly speaking, is not in the sphere of homiletics, it belongs to a previous preparation, we restrict ourselves to Cicero's point of view, under the name of invention, we treat of the choice of materials, and with this limitation, we shall speak first of the subject, and then of the substance of pulpit discourse, section first, subject of pulpit discourse, the subject of judicial and of political discourse is a question of fact, justice, or experience, arising out of an actual and contingent fact, discourse of these kinds, treats its subject, whether genus or species, only in an indirect or occasional way, having an ulterior end, pulpit oratory abides in the category of genus or species, in this eloquence, an individual and even an actual question is not wanting, but it remains concealed, the process as to this, is conducted in the dark, in the secrecy of every man's conscience, what appears is the generic and the permanent, moreover, it is always a question, whatever may be its nature, which is to be subject to the laws of discourse, we here advance the first rule of the first condition of pulpit discourse, its subject is one, chapter I unity of the subject, the human mind inherently demands unity, apart from unity, we can recognize neither truth, goodness, nor happiness, in morality, we want a principle to move and direct us, in life, a purpose, in institutions, harmony, in poetry, an idea, in history, a point of view, in the universe, one final cause of all effects, we are not pursuing identity under the name of unity, where there is identity, the very idea of unity disappears, plurality is necessary to give unity a place, systems of identity spring from our impatience to find unity, and our repugnance to regard things as disconnected, unity is essential to every work of art, art itself having as its chief aim to make one whole by combining scattered elements and defining art, the assemblage of the means for making a thing, we return to the same idea, for making is uniting, as unmaking is separating, every work of art is a work of subordination and of coordination, the first includes the second, all elements subordinated to one and the same principle, are thereby coordinated with one another, unity in works of art, requires not only the exclusion from one and the same whole, one assemblage, elements which are incompatible with one another, but the bringing all the parts into relation to one and the same center, one and the same end, there are two degrees in it, we may call the first negative unity, and the second positive unity, oratorical discourse demands unity yet more imperatively, not being read, but heard, it would very quickly weary our attention, if it were required to transfer itself successively from one side to another, its duration being short, compared with that of other productions, it is less at liberty to entertain the hearer with a variety of subjects, having to act upon the will, it gains on this account by concentrating itself on a single thought, it is when it does this, as different from discourse, which, however full, is incoherent, without definite aim, or confused, as an army is from a rabble, the strongest thoughts, which are not interconnected, injure one another, and the more in proportion to their strength, only very powerful minds can obtain profit from that which is without unity, or from that which is inconsistent with itself, attacked by a crowd of mutually self-neutralizing impressions, we are made captive by none, and are fixed to nothing, mark, when you have opportunity, the effects of such discourse on its seriously minded hearers, 
taking them as you find them. Each hero of this class, unconsciously to himself, will endeavor to give unity to a discourse to which the preacher has not given it, or will attach himself to one of the preacher's ideas, and adhere to that, or will perhaps force are these ideas to take the direction which pleases his own thought. The very solemnity of preaching requires unity. The solemnity would be less if the discourse, instead of being a procession, were a promenade. Evidently all this applies without abatement to the discourse of the pulpit, and we were right in saying that the first requisite in the subject of this discourse is that it be one, or, which comes to the same, that the first requisite in this discourse is to have one subject, for, when there are many subjects, there is none. If you tell a man that you have been hearing a discourse, his first question is, what was its subject? He never asks you what were its subjects unity of subject, in order to be real and to be felt, involves, unquestionably, a convergence or a gravitation of all the parts, even the minutest, towards the center, but this has regard to execution, of which we are to speak hereafter, here we consider only the choice of the subject, to obtain a clear idea of oratorical unity let us distinguish it from purely historic and purely didactic unity. It is different from historic unity in this, that it embraces at once the subjects and the attribute, that is to say, both terms of the proposition, while history places unity in the subject only. For example I were united, conquered, were divided, were overcome. It is true, that in this example even, we see how many attributes may be reduced to but one. The Greeks were stronger in proportion as they were united, but yet this attribute is but one of those of which Grecian history is composed, the unity of which, under the purely historic point of view, resides wholly in the subject, or material of history. Between the historic and didactic elements there is a difference which exists between the contingent and the necessary, the individual and the general. Fact and law which is a great primitive and unchangeable fact, that union is strength, is a general truth which results from many facts like that which has been above indicated respecting the Greeks, and yet this maxim may have two meanings, one a priori, the other a posteriori, oratorical unity is different from didactic in this, that all the elements it combines have for their last term a practical application or conclusion. The truth or idea which has been obtained is not left to expatiate and wander in the mind, out of all the conduits into which it flows, imagination, reason, sentiment, it is gathered and confined in one conduit into which all the others issue, that of the will, and thus it receives a course towards action, more or less rapid, in a word, the subject of oratorical discourse is a simple imperative proposition, do this, do not that, it is absolutely so at the bar or in the senate, release this prisoner, vote this law, the pulpit orator is in a position somewhat different, strictly oratorical unity resides in his preaching, rather as a whole than in each one of his discourses, the reason is, that he is not only an orator, like the lawyer or the politician, he is also and essentially a teacher, an instructor, but let us remark first, that there is in religion no didactic subject which has not practical bearings direct or indirect, nothing is level, all is inclined, nothing still water, all is a river or a torrent. Next, let us not forget that we are to treat these subjects as the best preachers do, in an oratorical spirit, and that charity gives this spirit, truth commands, fact becomes law. I conclude with shot, although it enters into the essential notion of oratorical discourse to make the determination of the will its supreme and ultimate end, 
we do not refuse the name of oratorical discourse to a composition in which this practical direction, without appearing in the announcement of the principal proposition, reveals itself clearly and unequivocally in the spirit and substance of the entire performance, but a theme which has no relation to a subject practically important, or which cannot be made so, without painful effort, is not a proper basis for an oratorical discourse, all subjects drawn from the Christian religion, are as having this character, more or less suitable for the pulpit, still I think, that ordinarily the preacher should not be contented to expound to them, merely, certain truths, this is instruction, but not an oratorical discourse, although the instruction may not be without oratorical characteristics, leave the people to make the inference, but should himself do this, and, at least, infuse a practical spirit into every part of his discourse. Sorin has given a highly and directly practical bearing to many subjects of a very speculative aspect, thus, in the sermon on the beatific vision of the deity we shall see God as he is, and we shall thus be made like him, the plan of God is to render man like God, it is the plan of the devil to make man like the devil, into which of these two plans do you propose to enter one subjects of this class may be compared to an arrow which though unarmed with a point, pierces the object by mere projectile force. In the sermon on the ministry of the angels demands of us an imitation of those blessed spirits who execute the divine commands with the swiftness of the winds and the activity of fire, in that on the equality of Jaor, after having established the essential equality of man, he remarks that he would hence infer nothing in favor of either anarchy or fanaticism, his inferences are these, moderation, submission to providential allotments, watchfulness to know the duties of your position, zeal and fervor, all the mortifications of inequality are to have an end, on the whole, one conclude that to have unity in a sermon, it must be reducible to a doctrinal proposition, which is readily transformed, and is in fact transformed into a practical proposition, assuming this, we shall now present some of the principal forms under which this unity may exist. We omit the consideration of practical or paranetic unity, because it is to be henceforth understood that this characteristic should appear in all subjects, and farther, that the pulpit is essentially didactic, thus, the impulsive character of pulpit discourse is assumed in all the examples we are about to consider, 1, there is unity in a simple proposition, whether doctrinal or practical, I mean a unique proposition consisting of a single subject and a single attribute examples. There is no peace to the wicked, God is not in all the thoughts of the wicked, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, bless those who curse you, prove what is acceptable to the Lord, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin, the wicked worketh a deceitful work, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God, the work of righteousness shall be peace. He who is not with me is against me, it need not be said that the development of the thesis or the exegesis of the text which contains it, together with its proof, forms no duplicity, it is not against unity to explain fully the subject or attribute, or both, as well might we proscribe definition, both the conviction and the determination of the will are often the result of exhibiting the sense in detail, as in 1 Timothy, I 5, the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, a good conscience and faith unfeigned, what this charity is was meant to be determined, in some cases the subject or attribute may need no elucidation, but these cases are uncommon, and it is useful to regard them so and to determine well what is to be proved, the mere announcement which suffices for the preacher, does not suffice for the generality, and thus the preacher, even if the hearers be not ignorant of his subject, should give it vitality, that they may have a strong perception of the point which he is to prove and enforce in his sermon. 2. The proposition retains simplicity, even though it have many subjects or attributes, 
provided these subjects or attributes form a whole. In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil, whosoever does not righteousness, and loveth not his brethren, is not of God. 1 John 3 10 Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no one shall see the ORD. Hebrews 12 14 Thus a discourse which exhibits the different qualities of a thing, may have unity, provided these qualities are such that they may be combined in one and the same attribute. There is no oratorical unity in the description of a machine, of a lace, of a man. A place may be beautiful, celebrated, difficult of access, uninhabited. These characteristics of it are not such as may be combined in one and the same attribute. But when there is an idea common to many different or even opposite attributes, T may be expressed. Thus when Marcillum says of ambition, that it is restless, scornful, unjust, he does not violate unity. In like manner there is unity in this passage. Christ was made unto us of God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians, I 30, 3. The qualities of a thing may be subjoined, not only when they have a common affinity or tendency, but when they mutually come to balance or modify or limit one another. Nevertheless the foundation of God standeth sure, having the seal, the Lord acknoweth them that are his, and, let him that nameth the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy, 2, 19. The seal of the foundation laid by God is of two parts, but they are inseparable, a twofold characteristic of the true faith, a characteristic which is genuine only as being twofold, as each of the peculiar truths of Christianity consists of two truths, even as the axis has necessarily two poles Christian, preaching may often introduce subjects of this character as a religion which reconciles all antitheses, should begin by putting them in relief, it is well that our discourses are antithetic, thus Bossuet says, the spirit of Christianity is the spirit of firmness and resistance, the spirit of charity and gentleness. J. Bordelau, in like manner, on the severity and mildness of the Christian law. 4. On the same principle, consequently, there is unity in a complex proposition, when the propositions of which it consists are integrant parts of the same truth. Thus, there is no perfect bond among men, but charity is a bond of perfectness. See Colossians 3, 14. Things which have not entered into the heart of man, God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. There is a fine example in Sorin's sermon on the repentance of the unchaste woman. Here a seeming triplicity is reduced to perfect unity. Capital I. 5. I find unity also in two perfectly independent but contrasted propositions. For contrast is a kind of unity. Examples. Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. Matthew, 22 e 21, the wicked shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal, Matthew, 25, 46, Massalanes sermon on the death of the sinner and the death of the righteous, makes this contrast very prominent, 6, there is unity where there is a successive exposition of a general truth and a particular truth, of which the first serves as the basis of the second, or of which the second completes the sense of the first, now abide our faith, hope, Charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity, 1 Corinthians, 12, 13, but I think that, in order to maintain strict unity, the orator must make the particular truth his object and his end, we cannot preserve unity if we treat successively of genus and species, 7, there is unity in a discourse which exposes successively a principle and its consequences, for the principle has its interest only in the consequences, and these have their solidity only from the principle, thus, God is a spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth.
Plurality of consequences does not break unity. When we speak of the consequences, however numerous they may be, we speak of the principle, we express what it contains, we make known its influence and its extent, we measure it, we give the principle its whole character, we declare at what price it is to be accepted. Example, the characteristics of charity, 1 Corinthians, 13, 8. There is unity in a discourse which after expounding a duty indicates the motives to its performance, but then there is here one part which is auxiliary or instrumental to the other, and we must not give this the same place which we give the other. If we have to exhibit a duty which has not been known, then we insist but little on the motives, we may put them before or after. If we have to enforce a duty which is well known, we give our care to the forcible presentation of the motives. It is difficult to conceive of a discourse which confines itself to the exposition of motives without ascertaining the nature of the duty. It is scarcely easier to conceive of one which speaks of duty without occupying itself with motives. Didactic unity doubtless may pass them by, but not oratorical unity. In every case, one of the parts, now one, now the other, must be made prominent and constitute the unity of the subject. 9. Unity may have place in a discourse which in treating of a fact notes its different circumstances. Thus in the example before given, Christ is made unto us, on the part of God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians I 30, I mean not merely that a proposition in which the subject is complex, or in which the attribute is complex, complicated, I would say, with an adventitious circumstance, is on, that account less, one thus, a, double-minded man is unstable in all his ways James, I, ate that, need not be said, I speak of circumstances which may be omitted, but which illustrate, or at least do not subtract from the main object, as you have always obeyed in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your salvation, Philippians, 2, 12, let it be understood that we assume that what we hear sanction, is to be performed in a proper manner, there are cases in which what appears as a circumstance, is the leading idea, Judas, betrayest thou thus the son of man with a kiss 1, Luke, 22, 48, to betray, the action, the son of man, the object of the action, the kiss, the mode of the action, three things which are concurrent, but yet of which one, for example that cis, may be considered separately, and form the theme of the discourse, another example, do good unto all men, especially unto the household of faith, Galatians, v 10, c, also, Hebrews, 12, 14, follow peace with all men and Ephesians, 2, 10, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, etc. Thus we obtain men of plans and perspective, and that which now has precedence, may at another time give place to another. 10. Unity in discourse in the same manner, may be maintained by presenting the same truth in several relations and bearings. These relations or bearings are accessories which often owe violence to unity, glory, honor and peace to every man who doeth good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, Romans. 2. 10. I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Acts. 24. 16. In a case like the last, however, it is difficult to prevent one of the relations indicated, from becoming the principal object of the discourse. 11. There is no inconsistency with unity in the exhibition and application of the same proposition to different classes of hearers, on whom it should make different impressions. If the truth in its principle is the same to all, yet the impressions which some receive from it tend to confirm the impressions of others, the returning confirms the salient angle, and this confirms that, sadness and joy, ear and hope, correspond reciprocally to each other. 
12, 1 and the same discourse may treat of a fact and its mode, of a duty and the means of performing it, without violating the law of unity. Additional remarks on unity OP subject 1. Although a factitious, verbal unity, the result of an artifice of language, is real unity only in the view of inattentive minds, the sports of appearances, I cannot object to the process by which two objects in themselves not forming unity, are placed under a common point of view, covered by a common idea which allows of their presentation as a whole. In fact, there is nothing here factitious or false. It is a unity, not fabricated, but discovered. It existed before. It was only necessary to set in relief the side on which it was perceptible. 2. After having laid down the principles of rigid oratorical unity, and maintained it in each of the forms which I have indicated, I will add, that in presenting the ideal of oratorical composition, I do not exclude all preaching which is not strictly conformed to it. The French preachers of the Catholic communion adhere to this ideal more closely than others. A sermon of theirs generally forms a bundle more compact, a sheaf better prepared to be put into the garner. This accords with the character of the nation, which demands in all respects the satisfaction of the aesthetic sentiment, which perhaps has the predominant influence in art. It is wise to be restricted, as these preachers were, to the most severe method, and to reserve liberties for the age of experience and maturity, and the maxim of Fenelon, taken to the letter, is a good one at the beginning. All discourse which has unity, may be reduced to a single proposition, thus, Speaking of spiritual and political liberty in a sermon on the truth shall make you free, John, 8, 32, thus, again, on the text, my commandment is exceeding broad, comma Psalm 19, 96, a preacher under warrant of the word broad, proved successively that the law of God embraced many things, and then that it extended itself over the whole earth. The discourse is the proposition developed, the proposition is the discourse abridged, it is useful to subject each of your discourses to this test, let it not be enough to be able to give them a title, endeavor to condense them into one proposition, and distrust your work when you cannot succeed f could Reinhard ever have reduced to one proposition the sermon he has entitled, on the joy of faith, the scheme of it is this, 1, conditions of this joy a seriousness, b docility, c impartiality, 2. Grounds of this joy a scripture, be excellence of the gospel, see experience. 3. Effects of this joy a firmness, be frank confession, see zeal for the propagation of the gospel. 4. The value of this joy a the certitude which it gives, be courage in misfortune, see hope of heaven. To make the didactic character of pulpit eloquence an apology for such a discourse, would be to cut up the substance of morality and theology into chapters. Now we do not think that a sermon is a chapter, in all cases a chapter is too long, I mean intellectually. It is easy to fall into this error after contenting ourselves with a title, such as Reinhard has given to his discourse. Even in the other case, that in which the sermon has a proposition for a title, may not the subject have too much breadth one, not in itself. It may embrace two particular subjects, we cannot think it can be too broad. Extent is not multiplicity, it does not therefore exclude unity, which may be as much wanting in a discourse on a very particular subject, as in one on a very general subject. Everything depends on the execution. It is proper and useful to present to an auditory sometimes a subject of a very vast extent, but then we must not introduce into it all the ideas which we would introduce into each of its parts taken separately, as the subject of an entire sermon. There are, it is true, very intellectual auditories, and perhaps a very intellectual orator might be able, without violating the laws of unity, to keep their attention quite to the close of a sermon equal to two common ones. Particular subjects are more useful at first, 
they oblige us to examine thoroughly, to search out ideas which, in vast subjects, present themselves in a crowd. We should, on this account, study with caution the great models of the 17th century, their majesty, with which we are so impressed, proceeds in part from the breadth of the subjects of which they treat. Baudelaire, nevertheless, was very popular during the 34 years to which his career as a preacher extended, because, in his vast sermons, he observed the rules we have mentioned, but, in general, we should prefer a few ideas thoroughly examined, or well illustrated, to a great number of ideas lightly touched upon. As a summary of our complimentary remarks, we add in conclusion, that there are two tests of unity, one logical, which consists in reducing the whole discourse to a single proposition, the other psychological or sentimental, which consists in consulting our own impression and that of the auditory, on this twofold question, has the course been finished, has the limit been passed, the soul, the life, still better than the understanding, knows what unity of the subject consists in.